please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. text for this evening will be in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. We are finishing up what is often called the household code, or one of the household codes in the Bible. We've been looking at the various relationships that exist within a household, and how all of these are brought into subjection under Christ. And this evening we will take up the last of these sets of relationships, the relationship between slave and master. So give your careful attention to the reading of God's word, Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your hearts, as to Christ. Not by way of eye service, as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord, and not to men knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. As we have been going through this household code, we have been thinking about how these various relationships show us an aspect of what Christ is for us. And yet we've also noted that no single relationship in the household exhausts all that Christ is for us. And so taking marriage as an example, if marriage shows us a a deep, profound mystery that has now been revealed, that the relationship between man and woman always had to do with Christ's relationship the church. But that, that microcosm alone does not exhaust all that Jesus is for his people. He is not just as a husband to a wife. He is not just as a head to a body. He is not just as that one through whom we have adoption as sons brought into the household of the Father, but he is also our Lord, and we are his slaves. We should point out that we don't want to reduce this as the only thing that illustrates Jesus' relationship to us. After all, Jesus himself says that, uh, he he tells his disciples, I I no longer call you slaves, but friends. Because the slaves don't know what their master is doing, but Jesus has revealed to them the will of the Father and what he is doing. So we recognize that the the slave-master relationship does not exhaustively describe our relationship to Christ, but it's, it's an important feature of understanding part of how we relate to him as our Lord. And as we do so, we will find that this is a good thing, that it brings healing to human relationships where there are superiors and inferiors that where there is strife between those who have different positions of authority, that recognizing Christ's authority over all brings healing. 
that Christ heals the strife between the master-servant relationship by subjecting all such relationships to his own authority. So as we consider how Christ as Lord and we as his servants, even his slaves, uh, <coughs> are, are to serve him, we'll take up this idea under four points. First, Christ is the Lord of slaves. Secondly, that he is the Lord of lords. Thirdly, that he will reward uh, the slaves who serve him. And fourthly, that he will not show partiality to those who are masters according to his flesh. So first, consider that Christ is the Lord of slaves, that Christ is the Lord of servants. Those who find themselves in a position of low rank. Look at what Paul says in verses 5 and 6 and how he describes the slave's relationship and who is really the master that they're serving. Verse 5, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in, in the sincerity of your hearts as to Christ. Verse 6, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Paul is recognizing that those who find themselves in, in this position of, of slavery, in this position of being engaged through lifelong service to another human being, ultimately have another master besides their master according to the flesh. That they have a master who is in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that they are to view themselves primarily and ultimately as slaves not of their masters according to the flesh, but as slaves of Jesus Christ. <coughs> Several years ago, and I think for, for many, many years, there was a television program called Undercover Boss. While I am not overly familiar with this program, I'm aware of the premise of the show, which is that a high-ranking official, a CEO of a company or somebody who's in upper management, will come secretly in disguise and take on an entry-level position in his own company. And as he does so, he'll learn the, the sorts of things that the, the average workaday employee experiences. And he'll also interact with uh, uh, some people who are managers uh, above that, um, that entry-level position. What would it be like to be on that program? but to have been told a secret beforehand that this supposedly new employee that is coming is really the CEO of the company. How, how would that transform the way you think about your position in the workplace? The Christian is called to be something like that, to recognize that as we go about our, our daily Average, ordinary lives as we engage with those who are superiors over us, particularly in the workplace, and we can make application to other realms of life as well, but, but primarily in, in the workplace, as we engage with those who are, are superiors over us, to recognize that there's an even higher superior, and he's present, and he's seeing what you're doing, and that you're called to serve him rather than this, this lower-ranking 
master according to the flesh. So consider that you are a slave ultimately and, and primarily of Jesus Christ and that this is a good thing. We hear the term slavery and because of the, the gross sins that have commit, been committed throughout history and even the history of our own country, we hear the word slave and, and we uh, are filled with, rightly filled with, uh, uh, a revulsion against uh, anything that, that sounds like uh, what we have experienced in our history. And yet consider what it is to be a slave of Christ. To be a slave of somebody is to be bound to them in service for life. It's to belong to that person. And if you have to belong to somebody for life, and if you have to serve somebody for life, who better to be a slave of than Jesus Christ? If you have to be a slave to someone, there is no better person to be in the service of. Consider the only other alternative. Either you are a slave to God, a slave to righteousness through Jesus Christ, or you are a slave to sin. And slaves of sin find that they are duly rewarded for the service that they render to their sin master. And the wage that comes to them by way of their service to sin is death. The wages of sin is death for those who are in the slavery and in the bondage of sin. But consider how those are treated who are in service, who are bound to another master, who are bound to Jesus Christ. Those who are bound to Jesus Christ receive a free gift, eternal life. Paul describes this. He describes these, these two paths of, of service. And he says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. The one service to the one master leads to death. But on the other hand, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the one master pays a just wage, death. The other master gives a free gift, eternal life. So how wonderful it is to belong to a Savior, to have a Lord who gives this as a free gift to those who belong to him. We recognize that there is a general way in which Jesus is Lord of, of all, but there's a special way in which he has purchased us with his own blood and has so bound us to him for life and to be engaged in his service. And as we do so, our end is eternal life. So as we think about the calling of, of those who have uh, a lower position, a lower rank as they relate to others in the workplace. And they're called to remember that as slaves, as servants, as employees, they are ultimately serving Christ. How might keeping that in mind change
your attitude about your work towards your boss, towards your employer. You ask the question, who do you work for? And you might reply, well, I work for Kroger, I work for Walmart, I work for John Doe, he's my boss. Perhaps you say, I work for my dad in the family business. But this text challenges us to see ourselves as primarily serving Jesus Christ. So you can serve Jesus right where you are in your workplace already, in the average, ordinary, mundane situation that you find yourself. You can serve Jesus Christ right there. This isn't something that you can do only if your employer happens to be a, a Christian or if you happen to be doing something that is immediately connected with the work of the church, but in all lawful vocations, you have the opportunity to serve Jesus Christ. So how would this transform and elevate the way that you view your work? Have you ever wondered about the meaningfulness of your work? Have you ever thought (laughs) uh, along the lines of Ecclesiastes and you, you see sort of the repetition and how you do the same things over and over and over again, but the job never seems to be finally accomplished and finally done. You swept the same floor every day, and you come in the next day and it's just dirty again. You pull the same lever, minute after minute, hour after hour. You corral the same shopping carts, day after day, hour after hour. You do the same financial reports every month. You mow the same lawns every week, and the grass just comes back and keeps growing. And you ask yourself, where is the meaning in all this? What's the point of this? If Jesus asked you to sweep that floor, do you think you would do a good job? If Jesus asked you mow that lawn, or to corral those shopping carts, do you think that would be the best that anybody has ever corralled shopping carts before in your life? This is how we are to view our callings and our vocations. As we're serving, we're ultimately serving Jesus Christ himself, even in our ordinary vocations. Even though we have masters according to the flesh, even though we have employers according to the flesh, ultimately we are rendering in service Jesus Christ himself as we go about these things. Students in school may ask themselves, I can't wait to be done with the academic year. I can't wait to uh, be at the next weekend. And yet how might that idea change? How might that way of thinking change? you recognize that I'm studying for Jesus. Everything I do is in service to him. How might this change the way we hear your case of the Monday? We have an expression in our language, a a case of the Monday. Perhaps some of you have it already starting deep in your stomach right now. It's Sunday evening. Tomorrow's Monday. You're going to go home weekend is over, the day of rest is over, worship is over, and 
are going to have to go back to work, back to school, back to the ordinary routine that you have. But think about this. Tomorrow morning, you get to go to work for Jesus. Do you see how the ascension of Christ into heaven over all other authorities, over all other powers, can transform even the most mundane and ordinary tasks, the most ordinary parts of your life? Because no matter how ordinary, no matter how small, we're still under his lordship. So as we <coughs> remember that Christ is the Lord of servants, of employees, of slaves, it should change the way we uh, behave uh, in our respective callings, be it at the hands of fear and trembling, with a singleness of heart, with a sincerity, not by way of eye service, not only just working hard when the, the employer or the superior is in the room looking over our shoulder. But even when he's gone, recognizing that we're not just serving him, and so we're not just trying to work hard when he's around and observe him, but that we're, our ultimate goal is to live in a way that is pleasing to Jesus Christ. And so we're going to take all of the work, we're going to take all of our, our time in that, that position, all of that time in our respective callings, and we're going to do it as unto Jesus Christ himself. With goodwill, serving God from the heart. Secondly, Christ is the Lord of lords. He's not only the Lord of slaves and servants and employees. He is the Lord of masters, the Lord of employers, the Lord of business owners, the Lord of lords. <coughs> the same word that, that Paul uses to describe masters according to the flesh is the same word for, for lord. So, for example, you see that in verse 9. Uh, if you're reading either from the ESV or the NASB, uh, verse 9 says, And masters, do the same thing to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. It's the same word there for a, a human master and the master who is in heaven. And, and that word itself is the same word for Lord. It's a common word that is used elsewhere in the scriptures to describe Jesus as the Lord. And it's the same word that appears earlier, in verse 5, masters according to the flesh, your, your Lord according to the flesh. So not only is it the employee, the person who's in a, a, an inferior ranking position who is serving the Lord, but also we, or those who have uh, a higher position of authority, are themselves subject to Jesus Christ as Lord. They may have an earthly lordship, but all of that is relativized beneath the heavenly lordship of Christ. They may be masters according to the flesh, but they themselves have a master in heaven. We have an expression in English that we sometimes use when we refer to my boss's boss. We recognize that our boss on earth usually has someone who's above him. And he has a manager that he is attached to. Well, that's true with respect to the way things are on earth, but it's also true in an ultimate sense with respect to Jesus Christ, that anybody with authority on earth 
possesses a derived authority, the authority from Jesus Christ, and that they themselves are subject to his authority. And so it's not only those who are in the lower position of employee, servant, or slave who are called to see themselves as serving Jesus Christ, but it also applies to those who have positions of authority, masters, um, business owners, employers, managers, bosses, anybody who has people working beneath them. So as we think about this, it should also change the way that employees think and treat, or excuse me, employers and managers treat uh, those below them. The authority that you possess is not an absolute authority, but it is an authority itself subject to Christ. And so you shouldn't ask, what's the bare minimum I can pay my employees in scope of pay? What's the absolute most labor that I can extract from them before they become dissatisfied and quit their jobs? Or what's the easiest way to make them conform to my will and do what I want them to do? Outbursts, threats, and manipulation seem to increase worker productivity. So why not make use of it? Uh, This is the way that somebody who is a master and who forgets that he has a master in heaven might think. But when you are in a position of earthly authority and you recall that you, in fact, do have a master in heaven to whom you are accountable, that way of thinking is going to be changed. All all things are going to be brought into subjection under him. And so you'll begin to ask other types of questions instead. Questions that have love as their basis. Do my employees have enough to provide for the well-being of their families? Do they make enough so that they can be generous towards others? Do they get sufficient periods of rest? Are they working each day excessive hours? Or do they get sufficient rest each week especially the Lord's Day where they can take time to worship the Lord and be refreshed? Or am I exercising a kind of Pharaoh-like oppression of them and making them work for me instead of serving the Lord? Do they get sufficient time annually? Vacation weeks, sufficient leave at the birth of a child, the death of a relative, a health emergency? Questions filled with and characterized by a love and concern for those who are in this inferior position. Now our second two points, as our our first two points were parallel, Christ as the Lord of slaves and Christ as the Lord of masters. And so our our second two points are also parallel, that to each one there there is going to be a reward, or there is going to be a reckoning before Christ. And so again, first taking up the slave. Our third point, Christ will reward his faithful slaves. As we think about this, we, it's, it's important to recognize the, the nature of, of this reward. It's, it's not uh, something that is it's earned, but this is free gifts that Jesus Christ attaches to obedience. Now Jesus uh, said to his disciples, so you, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And so we ought to recognize that this this reward that Jesus gives is not something that we make Jesus somehow indebted to us 
I did it, now you have to pay me. But this is, this is out of generosity, out of graciousness, out of gift. He is pleased to attach blessing to obedience. Now, to borrow an, an analogy that, that might help us understand this better, you can think of parents who tell a child to clean his or her room. And, so, and, and then promises, if you do so, we'll go out for ice. So the child imperfectly cleans the room. The, the sheet isn't perfectly tucked under the mattress. It's still a little bit messy. There are surfaces that didn't get dusted and, and everything else. But the parents nevertheless take the child out for ice cream. <coughs> and it's not because the parents are indebted to the child. It's not because they, uh, the, the child, by uh, making an effort at cleaning the room, somehow put his parent under under some kind of debt. It's simply because the parents are, are freely generous in attaching this, this consequence of going out for ice cream to their obedience. The parents could have very easily said, you have to clean your room, and left it at that. And the child could have cleaned the room, and then that was it. And that would have been just. There's no obligation on the part of the parent to attach further blessing or reward. But because the parents are good, because they're loving, because they're generous. They delight to show good gifts to their children, and they add the ice cream on top of the cleaning the room. So we recognize this, this is not a, a meriting of a reward, but this is a gracious gift, and that Jesus attaches. And we see in our text that this is what Paul uses to, to motivate slaves in their position to obedience. In verse 8, as he's addressing them about what kind of obedience to render, he tells them, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. So what will it be like to receive a reward or to receive back from Jesus? Have you ever gotten a, a generous bonus at the end of the year? perhaps a, a gift after uh, a 10-year anniversary at the same workplace, or maybe the company has put on an extravagant meal at Thanksgiving uh, for its employees. Uh, we're familiar with, with the generosity of, of masters on earth, masters according to the flesh. But where does generosity come from? comes from God himself. And think about how generous he is. Right? He's, he's already given his own son for our salvation. He sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins. He raised him again. Right? He's freely given us his son. And he's going to freely give us all things with him. And so as he has promised, according to 6 verse 8, to, uh, uh, to give back whatever good thing a person has done, and as he does that out of his generosity, what will that be like? Well, it won't just be a, a, an extravagant uh, meal uh, like the one you, you ate when your employer put it on for Thanksgiving. But it's Jesus Christ himself who is, is showing this graciousness. Doesn't that stimulate the imagination of, of what that might be, what that might be like? 
that these verses are, are tantalizingly sparse about what exactly that is going to be like. But doesn't it pique your curiosity? What is it going to be like when Jesus rewards somebody who faithfully served him when nobody else was looking? What is it going to be like when Jesus rewards his servants who put up with abusive language from their employers in the workplace? What is it going to be like when Jesus Christ rewards those who uh, refuse to compromise ethically when they were experiencing great pressure from elsewhere? Are those too eager to find out? So keep that in mind, that Jesus Christ <coughs> will give back to you whatever good thing you render to him on this earth. If you forget that, it can become very easy to become cynical in the workplace. What's the meaning? What's the value? Is it making any difference? But if you keep in mind that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and that he will render to each one of us according to the deeds done in the body, and to remember, though, that he's gracious in that it brings a meaning, it brings um, a hope into our service as those in the workplace and employers in the workplace. And fourthly, just as servants are uh, animated and, and stimulated to serve Christ with the, the, the promise of receiving back from him whatever good, uh, according to whatever good thing they do. <coughs> uh, also, there is a warning to those who are in positions of authority. Verse 9, the masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. There is going to be a reckoning, not only for those who are servants and slaves on earth, but there's going to be a reckoning for those who are managers, bosses, employees, and masters. And so there's a warning that even though they might have an earthly status, which appears privileged, and which they can use to all sorts of ad advantage for themselves, <coughs> well, I can give you a little extra money if you'll do this. Well, I have this uh, position of authority, and if you don't do what I say, I can fire you. I have this position of authority, and it's, it's almost like a magic wand that can be waved to get whatever they want. And Paul warns them, be careful, because you too will have to stand before Christ. And he doesn't show partiality. He's not impressed by the fact that you had a position of authority in the workplace. That he calls you to the same, to think the same way as the slaves themselves. Verse 9. Do the same thing to them. To have the same attitude as them. Recognizing that they too are in Christ's service. And have to conform their lives to his will. And so their actions are then to be characterized
again, we can return to that television program, Undercover Boss. I believe at the end of every episode, there is a reckoning that takes place. Those employees who uh, behave unknowingly, not knowing that their boss, that their CEO was present, and yet they're working hard, faithfully, honestly, are, are somehow rewarded and recompensed. And, and perhaps sometimes those who mistreat those who, who had a position of authority them find themselves disciplined or, or even fired. This is, this is just a, a faint human analogy of what is in store for us at the last day when Jesus Christ will reward those who have served him and there will be, there will be justice. Nobody's going to get away with anything. And yet there will also be in Christ and according to his sacrifice a mercy a generosity, a, a, a richness of, of love that is shown to those who have served. And so, as we face Monday morning tomorrow, let's go into our various callings, let's go into the workplace, reminded that whether employee or employer, whether manager or managed, that we have a Lord who is in heaven, and that he will give back to each one the good that he does, and that he will also not show partiality in that. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to live in light of the day of Christ, that we would take all that has been entrusted to us, and that we would direct it towards the service of Christ, whether the eyes of a human master are on us or not. We ask that we would remember that the eyes of Christ are always on us and that we are serving him. And may we serve him from a, sincere, from a sincere heart and with a cheerful spirit. We ask these things in his name. Amen.